take your worship guide and your Bible and turn in your Bible to 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 14 through 17. It'll be the central text, the primary text of our time in God's Word this morning. The year was 1510. And the young Martin Luther, after five years as a monk, was finally making his pilgrimage to Rome. His expectations of the capital city of the church, however, were far from met there on his visit. Instead of a city flowing with the grace of God and holiness of Christians changed by Christ, he found rampant ungodliness and impropriety among the citizens of Rome, and even worse so among the clergy and even Pope Leo X, who had seemed to develop for himself a greater love for amassing physical wealth rather than for helping the poor and the downtrodden. Discouraged and disillusioned, Martin Luther returned to his home of Wittenberg, Germany. And over the next several years, in an effort to raise funds for the rebuilding of St. Peter's Cathedral in Rome, the Roman church began selling indulgences, that is, pardons from purgatory. Martin Luther, in his frustration of seeing the church build its monuments on the backs of the already destitute, turned to the scriptures in a fruitless attempt to find a defense for the sale of indulgences. Instead, what he found in the scriptures was a way of salvation, not by particular prayers and through monetary gifts to the church, but salvation as a gift from God to be received by faith in Jesus Christ. The scriptures set a fire under Luther and many of his contemporaries. The word of God was being rediscovered and with it the true gospel. The conviction of the reformers that scripture alone... And not the traditions of man or even of the church. That scripture alone is the final authority on all matters pertaining to salvation and godly living. Was later codified. It was later summed up in Latin as these two words. Sola scriptura. Scripture alone. This also became the driving force of the Protestant Reformation. As it spread across Europe in the 16th century. Now 500 years later. The Pew Research Foundation has released some findings recently, uh, just uh, about a month ago. And in their findings, they said this. United States Protestants are split on, another, on an issue that played a key role in the Reformation. 46 say, 46% say that the Bible is the sole source of religious authority for Christians, a traditionally Protestant belief known as sola scriptura. Meanwhile, 52% say Christians should look both to the Bible and to the church's official teachings and tradition for guidance, the position held by the Catholic Church during the time of the Reformation and today. Did you catch that? That the soul, the, the chief, not the soul, but the chief conviction of the Reformers, sola scriptura, that scripture alone is our final authority for all things pertaining to salvation and godliness, that only 46% of Protestants, those that have, of denominations that have come out of the Protestant Reformation, spearheaded by Luther, Calvin, Zwingli, others, only 46% still believe that sola scriptura is absolutely necessary for the church. While 52% A slim but still majority say that Christians should look both to the Bible and the traditions, the teachings of men. This month, we have the distinct privilege to celebrate the 500th anniversary of the Reformation. And we do well to begin where the Reformation began uh, began with the scriptures. And so let us look this morning to 2 Timothy chapter 4. 
verses 14 through 17. Uh, excuse me, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 14 through 17. Here Paul, writing to the young pastor Timothy, as he is pastoring in Ephesus, says this. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. Paul here in this verse says many things, these verses says many things about God's word to young Timothy, this young pastor in Ephesus. He says, first of all, that God's word is his word. Breathed out by him, breathed out by God. Verse 16, Paul says, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, training, and righteousness. The word that Paul uses there, the Greek word that he uses for God breathed is the, the Greek word theonoustos. Theo meaning God, noustos meaning breathed. Many have translated this word inspired by God. Perhaps the translation you're reading out of this morning says inspired by God. And it is in part from this verse that we understand the scriptures to be God's word spoken and written by faithful men in the guidance of the Holy Spirit. Paul writes or Peter writes, excuse me, in his second letter, second Peter one twenty one, he says, no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. But men spoke as uh, men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. The Bible is a simultaneously divine and human book. It has men for its writers. Yes, human men for its writers, but God for its ultimate author and superintendent. Everything that God intends to say through these men, he ensures that they say by the work of his Holy Spirit in them to guide their thoughts, their instruction, spoken and written word to his people. Yes, Paul wrote this letter, but Paul, in the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, wrote this letter to Timothy. Moses, in the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, wrote the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Old Testament. We could go through each of the books of the Bible and say the exact same thing. God's word is his word breathed out by him. But God's word is also the scriptures comprising both the Old and New Testaments. Here in 2 Timothy 3.15, Paul reminds young Timothy of his acquaintance with the sacred writings. He says, how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus. Here, Paul is referring to the Old Testament scriptures, since, of course, the New Testament was still in construction in that day. The Old Testament, Paul says, is able to make one wise unto salvation. Meaning that the Old Testament is ultimately really about the gospel. It's really about Jesus and how to be saved by God's grace through faith in him. All through the Old Testament are pointings to and preparation for God's promised Messiah, Jesus, the Savior and friend of sinners. But the Old Testament is not all that is or should be considered scripture. We also consider the New Testament books and letters to be God's word as well. The Apostle Peter in 2 Peter 3.16 includes Paul's writings among the other scriptures, as he says there. Paul, in his first, Timothy, first letter to Timothy, gives instruction for caring, uh, for caring for pastors. 
and how a church should care for their elders, saying in 1 Timothy 5.18, the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. They're quoting Deuteronomy 25.4. And also the scripture says, Paul says in 1 Timothy 5.18, the laborer deserves his wages, a phrase that is not found in the Old Testament scriptures, but is quoted in Luke chapter 10, verse 7 from Jesus. So then we see evidence from both Peter and Paul that the Gospels and the Apostles' letters are on par with. They are considered Scripture even with the Old Testament. This is the Bible attesting to its uh, own authority. But how do we know that the Old Testament is really the Word of God? Well, in the Old Testament, there are over, if you wanted to look through and count, I have a, a software program that helps me to count numbers higher than 20. And... In the Old Testament, I found this week, there are over 260 occurrences of the phrase, the word of the Lord. And the vast majority of the time, that phrase, the word of the Lord is used. It's used in connection to a message that God has given to one of his many prophets in Israel's history to declare to the people or to write down. Most of the time, both to declare it and to write it down. Without belaboring the point, we can see clearly from the Bible's own internal testimony. That it is God's word, his spoken, inspired, written word for his people and to the world for all time. By nature of this very fact, we can say with confidence that these 66 books, this library that we, portable library of God's word that we have, is the very word of God. God's word is his word. It belongs to him. It's breathed out by him. God's word is to us in the scriptures. But thirdly, and here we get on to the first of four primary convictions about the word of God and, and its, well, primary convictions about the word of God that arose out of the Reformation. God's word is authoritative. It's authoritative. Since scripture is God's word, belongs to him, right? Since it is written and unchanging. The reformers, Martin Luther and, and his buddies, understood it to be every Christian's final authority on all things pertaining to salvation and godly living. Everyone holds to some final authority in life. Every one of us does. For some, that final authority is observational and repeatable scientific methods. For others, it's rational and logical philosophy. For most of us in the present, day, uh, present age, our final authority is our own personal intuition, how we feel about things, what we determine in our own minds is right or wrong. But people fail. People err. We are often mistaken and we often misjudge and contradict ourselves all the time. Martin Luther saw in his day the practice of selling indulgences by the Catholic Church as a thoroughly unbiblical practice. These indulgences were pardons from purgatory that the Pope would issue to persons for their dead family members or even for themselves. The Roman Church had used the sale of these pardon papers to finance the building of lavish cathedrals like St. Peter's Basilica in Rome. Luther, though, in his search of the scriptures, saw no biblical warrant for such a practice. And the sight of the sale of indulgences to poor people who already could not afford to put bread on their table, much less to pay their way out of purgatory, so repulsed him that he was launched into a personal mission to make sense of all of this. And where did he go to solve his conflict of conscience? He went to the scriptures. The Roman Catholic Church then, as now, believes that there are two sources of final authority when it comes to the things pertaining to salvation and godly living. The scriptures and tradition with a capital T. 
Tradition with a capital T is defined by the Roman church as those oral traditions, the unwritten, passed down traditions of the apostles. This source of authority is generally found in the doctrinal teachings of the Roman church. But this tradition, capital T, not always reflected in scripture, is what led to the sale of indulgences. The written word of God that we have in the Bible, because it has been exhaled by God, breathed out by God through those that he inspired to write, is by its very nature authoritative in the highest degree. There's no authority higher than God. Certainly there are things we may know about God from observing nature. For instance, as Paul says in Romans 1, that he is powerful, that he is moral, that we are not moral in comparison to God. But we cannot know God personally unless he specifically reveals himself to us. The Bible is that specific revelation of God to man, of himself to us. It's God's declaration of himself. In it, he shows us our sin and rebellion against him. In the Bible, he shows us his perfect holiness. Most importantly, though, in the scriptures, God gives to us the definitive way by which we can have our sins forgiven and be right with him through placing our trust in his son, Jesus, who bore the penalty for our sin against God in his death on the cross and was raised from the dead for our justification with God. Friend, if you know nothing else of God or anything of him from his word today, the most important thing you can know is that God has deemed a way to save you from your sins. And that by sending his son Jesus to save you, to die in your place, be raised from the dead. Friend, if you don't know Jesus this way, come to know him this way today. Don't hesitate. Be not separated from God another day further. Because scripture has the one true and perfect God for its author, it cannot and does not lie or deceive. It is totally true, totally trustworthy. It's without error in all manners on which it speaks. Human beings on our own are not this way. We, unlike scripture, are fallible. We are often mistaken. And so it is not so much that traditions or teachings of the Roman church or any Protestant evangelical church have no authority, for in some sense they do. But the authority of tradition, the authority of certain teachings of the church, is only recognized when it is subjected and subordinated to the scriptures. When a teaching of the church runs contrary to scripture, it's the teaching and the teacher that bow to scripture and not the other way around. Paul's declaration to Timothy that all scripture is breathed out by God is a clear statement to the superseding authority of God's word over all others, especially in matters of knowing God and of trusting him. The doctrine of scripture's authority has relevance to us today in the current debate over whether science or the Bible gives us the truths that govern our existence. We who believe the Bible need not totally ignore nor repudiate science, but where the two are in disagreement, we defer to the Bible's narrative because it is God's narrative. Likewise, in the church and in worship of God and as living as Christians in this world, whether pastor or church member, all of our life is to be lived in submission to God's word. Four years after he posted his 95 theses, his points of discussion about the sale of indulgences, in 1521, Martin Luther came up on trial before Catholic officials. He was asked if he would recant his numerous writings against the abuses of the Roman church, to which he answered, Unless I am convicted of error 
By the testimony of the scriptures or by manifest reasoning, I stand convicted by the scriptures to which I have appealed. And my conscience is taken captive by God's word. I cannot and will not recant anything for to act against our conscience is neither safe for us nor open to us. God's word is authoritative. But God's word is also clear. The doctrine of the authority of God's word lends itself neatly to the doctrine of the clarity of God's word. Returning to our text at hand this morning, Paul instructs young Timothy that the scriptures in verse, uh, chapter 3, verse 15, are able to make him wise unto salvation. That is, they show the way to be saved by faith in Christ. And also that they are profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, training, and righteousness. The fact that Paul could instruct Timothy to use the scriptures this way implies that the scriptures can be understood, doesn't it? That this is the heart of the Reformation conviction. Even scripture itself, though, however, tells us that it is clear and that it can be understood. First, when God delivered the people of Israel from Egypt, he gave to them the Ten Commandments, those we read in Exodus chapter 19. But in Deuteronomy chapter 5, as Moses is giving his farewell speech uh, to the Israelites before he dies, he there in Deuteronomy 5 reminds Israel of the Ten Commandments, of the commands that God gave. And then in chapter 6 of Deuteronomy, verses 6 and 7, Moses says this, These words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. Words and instruction from the Lord that can be taught by average parents to their children must by necessity be clear and understandable. God has not given us a book of riddles. He's spoken clearly. But second, we also see not just in the Old Testament that God's word is teachable and understandable, but in the New Testament, we see that regularly... Uh, regularly in the context of the gospel, we hear Jesus utter the phrases, haven't you read in the scriptures or do you not know from scripture several times in the book of Matthew alone? He says these things, this seemingly simple phrase, have you not read in the scriptures implies that those to whom Jesus is speaking are capable of understanding the scriptures. That they've read them, that they've understood them, that they're applying them to their lives that day. That the scriptures are clear enough to comprehend and even to obey. We also see, thirdly, how the scriptures were used among God's people in both the Old Testament and the New Testament. So parents are instructed to teach their children. Jesus assumes that, that those, the, the, the uh, Jewish authorities had read and understood the scriptures. But we also see that the, in the New and the Old Testament both, that the scriptures were used regularly among God's people. When the people of Israel return from captivity in Babylon and rebuild the wall of Jerusalem around the city, they celebrate by reading the scriptures. We read in Nehemiah chapter 8 verses 5 and following. Uh, it says this, And Ezra, who was the priest at the time, Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people. This is the book of the law. For he was above all the people, standing above them. And as he opened it, all the people stood. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen, lifting up their hands. And they bowed their heads and worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. We read in verse 7 that many of the leaders among the people helped the people to understand the law while the people remained in their places. They read from the book, from the law of God, clearly. And they gave the sense, that is, they interpreted it for the people. So that the people understood the reading. 
Even in the Old Testament, the word of God was read publicly, taught publicly, explained publicly because it was assumed to be clear and understandable. But also in the New Testament, uh, we, we see that in the New Testament church, Paul's letters, which we understand to be the word of God inspired by the Holy Spirit, were read publicly in the churches to which they were written. That we see in 2 Corinthians 1.13, Ephesians 3, where Paul references to the church that they should read this letter to one another. Paul even says that the gospel that he preached of Christ's death and resurrection was, as he says in 1 Corinthians 15, according to the scriptures. So to imply that the church could consult the scriptures to affirm the truth of the gospel. God's word is clear and understandable. It is searchable and knowable. Some parts are harder to understand than others. The Catholic church in the 1500s reserved for themselves the authority and ability to interpret the scriptures, assuming that they were not clear enough for the average parishioner to grasp. The doctrine of the clarity of God's word, though, teaches that if you possess a Bible in your language and you have the Holy Spirit of Christ dwelling in you by faith in Jesus, you can read and understand the Bible, even the hard parts. This you do with an attitude of prayer and a humble heart, using the clearer portions of Scripture to help you understand the less clear, all while relying on the same Holy Spirit that inspired the Word to lead you to understand it. What better teacher do we have in understanding God's Word than the same Holy Spirit of God that inspired it in the first place? Friends, this conviction about the clarity of God's Word, that it can be understood, should give you great joy and great hope this morning. There should be joy in your heart knowing that the creator of the universe deems it a good thing to speak to us in language that we can understand. God wants to be understood and known by us. And he's given each of us a clear way to know him through his word. Also, it should give you hope to know that even if you struggle to understand hard parts of God's word, That with enough time and prayer and the help of the Holy Spirit, all of his word can be clearly understood. Over a hundred years before Martin Luther penned his 95 theses, his complaints against the church. An English priest named John Wycliffe thought so highly of God's word and its clarity that he sought to make it available to all Englishmen. So he took the Latin translation of the, of the Bible called the Vulgate and from it produced the first English translation of the scriptures so that the people could read and understand the Bible for the first times themselves in their own language. John Wycliffe died of a stroke. But after his death, he was tried and convicted as a heretic for his beliefs and writings. His body was dug up, it was burned, and the ashes were scattered in a nearby river. Friends, believing that the scriptures are clear and understandable, John Wycliffe, before he died, gave these instructions to those who would read the Bible for the first time in their own language. You want to understand the Bible? This is what you do, John Wycliffe says. Obtain a reliable text. Find a good translation. And church, it is is an embarrassment of riches that we have so many good English translations of the scriptures. Obtain a reliable text. He says, understand the logic of scripture. There, I think he means understand that some parts are poetry and other parts are letters. Some parts are historical narrative. They're they're history, telling a story of God's people. Understand the way they were written and how they flow. He says, compare the parts of scripture with one another. 
So read all of God's word and flip back and forth in the pages of God's word. Most of your copies of the Bible have these fancy little footnotes that will point you to other places of scripture where similar things are mentioned. Finally, he says, maintain an attitude of humble seeking and receive the instruction of the Holy Spirit. Friends, God's word is clear and understandable. If we will, with enough time and prayer and patience, reliance upon the Holy Spirit, study God's word, he will make it clear to us. God's word is authoritative. It's clear. But thirdly, it's necessary. God's word is necessary. It's necessary for knowing God and for knowing his way of salvation. Let's say this morning that you are an admirer of fine watches, perhaps even a collector, not Timex, you know, something fancier, Rolex or something. Let us say that you, you admired a particular watchmaker and had acquired many watches that were made by him. What could you know of that watchmaker having never met him, but only having his watches to look at? You could know what sort of style he has, perhaps his flair for efficiency in design or function. You could know something of his skill as compared to other watchmakers, you being the watch aficionado that you are. But what could you know of the man? What could you know of the watchmaker himself? In truth, virtually nothing, unless you were to meet him and to speak with him and to hear from him. So it is with the world that we live in. There is evidence all around us in all of creation that there is a God, that he is powerful, that he has created. There's even evidence of our conscience that says that God is perfect and good and that we are not. But beyond that, there is little available in the book of creation by which we can know God. To know the creator and to know how to be right with him, he must speak to us. And indeed, he has in the Bible. The Bible is more than a simple book. It's the whole story of God's creation of the world, the story of the sin of man and God's, word to re- or God's work to rescue and to redeem sinful humanity. Redemption and forgiveness are possible because the Son of God took on human nature and the man, Jesus Christ, lived a sinless life, died for sins, and was raised from the dead. As we often note here in this church, the Old Testament narratives and the law and the prophets all work to prepare the people of Israel for the Savior that is coming from among them. And the New Testament is all about Jesus and about the effects and implications of the salvation he has purchased for us. But apart from the scriptures, Christian, we have no way to know any of these things about God, about Christ. We have no way to know how we can be saved unless God speaks to us. Without the scriptures, we remain ignorant of the way of salvation by faith in Jesus. Without them, we cannot be, as Paul says in 2 Timothy 3.15, wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. As God's inspired, unfailing, authoritative, and clear word, the Bible is necessary in our pursuit of salvation. Without it, we are lost and dead in our sin. Friend, you need the Bible today. The Bible is necessary to you today because it's the only way to know God in truth and to know the truth of how you can be saved by faith in Jesus. Thankfully, by God's grace, Orthodox Christians, whether Catholic or not, uh, before, during, and even after the Reformation have generally agreed on this point that God's word is necessary. We need God to speak to us and we need to know how to be saved. We need his word to show us Jesus. The very fact 
remains that apart from scripture and God speaking, neither you nor I would have any knowledge of Christ at all. The next time you're tempted to consider that you need something other than scripture or that you do not need it at all to know God, that you can just, you know, look around at nature and trust your personal instincts to know him. I want you to do this. Take a deep breath and hold it. For the first 30 seconds or so, you may not notice much difference. But let the time drag on. Feel the slowly increasing burn in your lungs. Notice the surging of your diaphragm as it protests your efforts to hold your breath. Sense the narrowing of your vision and the faintness of head. And be reminded that while your body, which trembles and fights for the oxygen it so desperately needs to survive, is but a pithy example of our souls, which so desperately need a clear word from God to live. God's word is authoritative. It is clear. It is necessary. But finally, God's word is sufficient. Look finally at all the ways Paul instructs Timothy to use scripture. Use scripture to be wise for salvation, for teaching, reproof, correction, training in righteousness, competence and equipping for good works of the faith. Paul says that God's perfect, inspired, never failing word is profitable for all of these things. That word profitable implies that something has some beneficial use for the gain of the one who uses it. God's word, Paul says, has power within it to accomplish beneficial gain of this, uh, of the, for the one who uses it. This is part and parcel of the Reformation conviction of the sufficiency of Scripture. That God's word alone is powerful to work and bring about change and growth in all of the ways that God desires to change and to grow us. Modern wisdom would say to us that one book on its own cannot be solely sufficient to do all this. One of the great deceptions of Satan, even among the church in the last several decades, even to today, is that we need something, not other than, but in addition to Scripture, to bring about spiritual growth and transformation. How many pastors' bookshelves are littered with books on church growth and spiritual formation and, and how, to, how to have a bigger church tomorrow and a better family today? How often are we looking for the next great Bible study to be published by titans of the industry like Beth Moore and Tony Evans and James McDonald or John MacArthur? How quickly do we speed to the Christian living section of Barnes & Noble to pick up the latest daily devotional book as soon as we finished another one? How readily do we look to the wisdom of men and women before consulting the scriptures today? The sufficiency of scripture is a doctrine that attests to the perfection and completeness of God's word. There's nothing in it that it requires of you that it does not also provide the means for you to obey it. Bible studies and devotionals are not bad. They're not evil. But often they can be quite helpful for understanding God's sufficient word. But these Bible studies, these devotionals, these other sources that we go to must never take the place of or precedent over our desire to be in and learn from God's word directly. Amen. I would draw our attention to 1 Peter chapter 1 verses 23 through 25 where we were just several weeks ago. For there Peter says, you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass and its glory like the flower of grass. 
The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word, Peter says, is the good news, the gospel that was preached to you. Church, what is it that God's word does to us, according to Peter? It causes us to be born again. In our sin, we have all died spiritually. We are dead in our sin. This is why Jesus can say to Nicodemus in John chapter 3, you must be born again. And how is it that we can have this second birth? Through God's word. His word, as Peter says, is imperishable and everlasting. It has as its climax the gospel of Jesus Christ that was preached to those who believed. God's spoken word finds its greatest pinnacle in the incarnate word of God. The apostle John begins his gospel this way. John chapter 1, verse 1, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him not anything uh, was made that has been made. And in verse 14 of the same chapter, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. We have seen its glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. The spoken And written word of God is perfectly complete and lacking for nothing for knowledge of how to be saved and how to live for God. Because God's spoken and written word is all about and pointing us to the word of God made flesh in Jesus, the one who saves us from sin. God's word is sufficient to cause our souls to live. So, Christian, why would we ever forsake or neglect the ongoing, life-giving, heart-changing, powerful word of God To grow our souls daily. The psalmist in Psalm 19 writes this. Psalm 19 beginning in verse 7. He says the law of the Lord is perfect. Reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is pure. Making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right. Rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure. Enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean. Enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true. And righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. Friend, you want to know how to be saved? Scripture will give you that knowledge. Scripture will point you to Jesus, God's son, who died for your sins and was raised again. Scripture will show you, have faith, tell you, trust Jesus for salvation. Turn from your sin, trust your life to him, and you will be saved. Christian, do you desire to be taught the things of God? Scripture will do it. Is a Christian brother or sister walking in sin? God's word is is a gracious light to shine upon it. Are you struggling with a difficult point of doctrine? God's word will correct your missteps and affirm what is true. Are you a young Christian needing to grow in spiritual maturity? The scriptures will nurture your growth. Do you desire to be more faithful and to be more faithful and effective in sharing God's uh, the, the gospel of Jesus with others and helping others to follow Jesus as well? Well, God's word is effective on its own to advance those capabilities in you. The sufficiency of God's word to accomplish his purposes is at the heart, not only of the reformers convictions about what they said and did and taught, but it's at the heart of my own personal conviction to preach through whole books of the Bible in sequence the way we do week to week. The Swiss reformer Ulrich Zwingli, contemporary to Martin Luther, shared the same conviction that I do. 
friend of Martin Luther's, Zwingli, was the town priest at Zurich in Switzerland. Being convinced by the study of Scripture from first to last that all that God does, He does by His own word, from the first moment of creation to the consummation of all things, Ulrich Zwingli abandoned the Catholic lectionary, that is their preaching schedule and preaching book. And he began preaching in Zurich, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, book by book with his church. He started in Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, and for the next six years, preaching nearly every day, he fed the town of Zurich directly from the bounty of God's word, and the city of Zurich was never the same. The sufficiency of Scripture more than any, other, any of the other doctrines that we've considered this morning. More, more so than its authority, its clarity, its necessity. The doctrine of the, the sufficiency of Scripture is more in danger of being lost among evangelical Christians today than any of the others. Its waning has not come by full frontal attack, but through the slower means of distraction, entertainment, and our present culture of immediacy. God's word surely works, and its work is sure. But like anyone who builds a structure to last the test of time, God, through his word, takes his time to work it into you. Because God's word is his word, church this morning, trust that his word will work in you to the same degree that you are faithful to be worked by it. To the prophet Isaiah, God said in Isaiah 55, for as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. May we, brothers and sisters, members of First Baptist West Albuquerque, in obedience to God's word, like the reformers before us, ever submit to its authority, seek its clarity. May we hold fast to it as necessary and trust in its sufficiency so that through his unfailing word, God will make us to be a people faithful and obedient to him. Let's pray.